This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome back our returning celebrity guest scorer, host of the Streaming Circuit podcast, co-host of our monthly Marvel crossover series, and friend of the show, Adam Hitchcock. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Glad to be back. Always fun to join this pod. So tonight for our 169th episode, we discuss the 2013 financial thriller, The Wolf of Wall Street, for its 10th anniversary, directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Terrence Winter, starring Leonardo DiCaprio as Jordan Belfort, Jonah Hill as Donnie Azoff, Margot Robbie as Naomi LaPaglia, I don't think that name was actually ever said in in the film itself, Kyle Chandler as FBI agent Patrick Denham, Rob Reiner as Max Belfort, John Bernthal as Brad Bodnick, Matthew McConaughey as Mark Hanna, John Favreau as Manny Riskin, Jean Desjardins as Jean-Jacques Sorel, Joanna Lumley as Aunt Emma, Kristen Milioti as Teresa Petrillo, Christine Ebersol as Leah Belfort, Shea Wiggum as Captain Ted Beecham, Katerina Cass as Chantel Bodnick, Stephanie Kurtzuba as Kimmy Belzer, PJ Byrne as Nikki Koskov, Kenneth Choi as Chester Ming, Brian Saka as Robbie Feinberg, Henry Zabrowski as Alden Kupferberg, and Ethan Supley as Toby Welch. Recognition for this movie, The Wolf of Wall Street was released on Christmas Day 2013. The film would go on to gross roughly $389 million on an estimated budget of $100 million and become the 28th domestic-ranked movie of the year as far as overall gross and number 17 worldwide grosser of 2013. The Wolf of Wall Street was met with some mixed reviews, but the majority of critical response was positive. It would eventually be nominated for five Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director for Scorsese, Best Adapted Screenplay for Winter, Best Actor for DiCaprio, and Best Supporting Actor for Jonah Hill. The film has since had several controversies, including the backlash to the depiction of Belfort as celebrating his debauchery, a Malaysian money laundering scandal that financed the film, and whether the proceeds of the film rights for Belfort would go towards restitution of his victims. The Wolf of Wall Street was listed on many critics' top 10 lists for films released in 2013, and was chosen as one of the top 10 films of the year by the American Film Institute. Metacritic analysis found the film was the ninth most mentioned film on Best of the Year film rankings, and the 22nd most mentioned on Best of the Decade film rankings. The Wolf of Wall Street currently holds an 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 75 score on Metacritic, and a 4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So we will start as we always do. Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? Well, this is the first time I'd seen the movie. Didn't see it at the theater, didn't see it subsequently, and so this is the first time I've seen it. Now, I I would add a, a comment, which is since this was released on Christmas Day, would that make this a Christmas movie? I mean, it's about as much of a Christmas movie as Die Hard. And thus, as much of a Christmas movie as It's a Wonderful Life. 
Yeah, well. Hot takes. No. Not really. We've argued this point before back in season two. Yeah, no. We just keep coming around because I'll never convince you and you'll never convince me. And that's the way it is. I don't care. It's not a matter of convincing. I don't care whether Die Hard is a Christmas film or not. I'm just saying that the logic says if It's a Wonderful Life is a Christmas movie, so is Die Hard. So if you want to count them both as Christmas movies, fine. If you don't want to count them as Christmas movies, fine. I'm just saying the logic has to be the same. No, it's the underlying story of what the meaning of the film is. But anyway, so that's my relationship going back to the original question is this is the first time I've seen the movie. And I'll be I'll be up front right off the bat, which is I appreciate Scorsese's uh, ability as a director. He is not necessarily a lot of his films, ones that I go, oh, they're so great and I love them so much. They just seem a lot of times to me to be excessive, <laughs> like uh, it's gratuitous, either the sex or the violence or whatever it is. And I, I don't necessarily, he's great at what he does as far as camera angle, timing, pace of the film, etc. But it just doesn't ring with me. It's just my own personal taste. So please don't go bonkers if you happen to be a lover of this film or any of Scorsese's films. Some of these mean more or or are more interesting than others. Gangs of New York, Departed. Oh, hold on. Raging Bull. This movie is gratuitous, but Gangs of New York is enjoyable? Uh, No, I didn't say that. I just at least thought the storyline in Gangs of New York was a little more palatable at least for my taste but okay okay i'm not asking you to agree with me i'm trying to debate damn it first of all i wouldn't give a shit if you agreed with me or not i stopped caring about that long long ago but that's a movie where there's gratuitous violence all over the place that's the entire point of the movie yeah if you would have said something like the aviator I could have gotten on board with that. Now, that I liked. I really liked The Aviator. Okay, that's a much quieter film. But to say that Gangs of New York had a a cleaner and less gratuitous uh, storyline than the... No, but the story itself, there was more story associated with it, to me. Okay? Okay. Adam, let's go to you. Sure. Well, Dana, big question. Where would this rank among the Twilight films for you? Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know since I've never seen a Twilight film and have uh, no intention. I will go to my grave going, thank you. I've never seen a Twilight film. Okay. Slanderous. To be fair, the episode you're even referencing won't come out until after this episode airs. Still funny. I don't care. I don't care. It's still funny. He laughed, and he didn't even get it. He wasn't even there, and he laughed. No, I I know where it's going. (laughs) I can about imagine. I absolutely love this movie. I've seen it probably three or four times. It's pretty long, so I haven't seen it a ton. But DiCaprio is my favorite actor of all time, and I think he's the greatest actor of all time. 
in my book. And I think this is his magnum opus. I think this is his best performance ever. And so I really cherish this movie because it's, it's just DiCaprio at full force, just, just unleashed by Scorsese. And it's amazing. I don't know. How can you beat DiCaprio versus a bear? Yeah, I know. I was waiting for a bear to come out and bite him through the entire film. It would have been just... Or snorting lines with a bear. Well, that's true. Do either of you think that's his best performance, though? I know it no, was Oscar. No, of course but... it's not. Okay. No, right. it was not. He grunted through most of the film. Wolf of Wall Street's in the top three. It's probably along with, I would say, Departed and Blood Diamond for me. Not Hollywood. I mean, it's it's real close. I would put Hollywood at two. I mean, quite frankly, they they could have done it. You know, instead of actually a a, a, a literal bear, they could have had sexy Rex the Grossman show up and do a couple of lines with them. At least there would have been a bear. And we just lost half our audience. <laughs> and a third of your hosts here. What did, what did you just reference? Rex Grossman, the former Bear quarterback from like 20 oh. years ago. Oh, hey, he made a Super Bowl. Which would have been consistent with the time frame. Not really, because The Revenant was a 2015 movie. But anyway, we digress. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's really close. All I can say is, is J. Edgar is not his best performance. Oh, come on. Don't be slanderous. Come on. Yeah, it's it was okay. probably actively his worst film. Oh, wow. Yeah, it might be. I haven't really thought about the bottom of the list, but yeah, it might be. I mean, he doesn't have many swings and misses. That was a swing and a miss. So what is this movie about? This movie is about excess and the power of money and uh, greed and uh, addiction to sex, drugs, and power. Yeah, I think it, uh, it it shows just the downfall of success. And, and like, like Dana said, excess. You know, the more money you get, you think it'll buy you this, this great lifestyle and this better life. And while money does can improve your life, it also, this movie shows, it can ruin your life because you just want more and more and more and it's never enough. Yeah, I think that's the unintended consequence of the film is it shows something that's unrealistic. There are consequences for these people. I think the entire point of the end of the movie is somehow to turn that on its head. But even then, he has to pay a lot of restitution. He doesn't have nearly as much money as he once did. He's got all these fraud charges. He did have to go to prison, in air quotes, for a little while. But, you know, even that is a lesser degree than, you know, most people going to prison. Well, okay, did either of you bother to look up the history of Steve Madden and what it took place? He ended up, as a result of, you know, from this film where he's doing basically insider trading and short-selling his own stock so that he uh, capitalizes on the overvaluation, he ended up in prison. But before he went to prison, he resigned from Steve's Madden shoe company design but he negotiated a deal with the handpicked board of directors um, that they would pay him a consulting fee, whether he was free or in prison, of $700,000 for 10 years. So he was getting paid $700,000 for 10 years 
while he was in prison. When he was released, he ultimately went back to the company, cashed out his, took a cash settlement on his contract, and ended up being the designer and like a uh, consultant in-house. He got named Designer of the Year in 2010 after he'd been in prison. And he's in the Design Hall of Fame. Potential fraud has nothing to do with how good your designs may or not be. Okay. I would agree. I would second that. I mean, America is about giving second chances to people. I mean, you know, I, I would I would love to be able to negotiate a $700,000 salary for myself before I end up in prison for robbing my own company, which is about what he did. Are you... Uh giving us your future plans here for the firm or no just don't audit anything okay i probably should take that out (laughs) it's a good it's a good presidential uh campaign as we've seen well only if you're paying porn stars well tomato tomato fugazi fugazi i thought about putting a box of uh files in my shower in the bathroom next to my office just make sure to flood your pool or flood, have the pool drain so it floods the ballroom where they're kept. Ah, okay. Anywho, I, I'm sure this question will be lost on you a bit, Pop, but there are two primary actors, and I, I would say they kind of span the two eras of Scorsese. You have the Robert De Niro era that kind of goes from, I would say, about Mean Streets, so 73 up through about Casino in 95. And yes, he was in The Irishman a long time after that. But then you get the second Scorsese era, which is roughly Gangs of New York, which I believe was 2002, up through kind of Killers of the Flower Moon is going to be coming out later this year. Do you prefer the first era with Bobby D or the second era with DiCaprio? I have a feeling, since Adam hasn't even seen anything before 1980, that uh, Bobby D might be out of the running, but just my thought. Slanderous. For me, I prefer uh, Leo's films. When you look at the list, I I connect more with those films than I do with the other ones. I mean, we were watching because we're doing a revisit on Taxi Driver. And I'm watching it again. And what did I say at the end of at lunch when we stopped it after what was about a half an hour in? I don't understand the point. Point of this film. I mean, it's one of the great American classics, and I know you have some very strong opinions as do I on Raging Bull. And even though it took me a while, I finally got around on Goodfellas. But you still are not necessarily a fan of that film. And oh, no, no, no. I, I really, okay, when I saw Raging Bull, I really liked Raging Bull because I thought it gave the most accurate portrayal of a flawed individual who was put into a position of great prominence because of athletic ability, not because of character or because of his personality. And that I liked the film for that reason. Do I want to watch it over and over again? I ha- I have a hard time watching people self-destruct. And that's fair. I wouldn't say that Raging Bull is a great rewatchable film, but it is at least an important film. 
that being said, you know, I know that especially the 90s films for a lot of people with Scorsese and Bobby D are important. Goodfellas, Cape Fear, Casino, you know, those are three classics for a lot of people. But for me, it's going to be tipped on the fact that The Departed is one of my favorite all-time movies. Yeah. So it doesn't matter that I haven't seen Shutter Island yet. Gotta see Shutter Island. Are you saying you're a cop? I'm not a cop. Are you a cop? I'm not a cop! What are you, on your period? Fucking rats. <laughs> <laughs> um, I definitely prefer the, the Leo era. I've seen a, a number of the De Niro Scorsese films, much d- despite what you've heard. I have seen a number of them, not all of them, but I'm definitely more familiar with the Leo ones. And I just, I mean, Leo's my favorite. So yeah, I definitely prefer the Leo era. Well, Dad, should we dig in more to Wolf of Wall Street? Do you have a plot summary ready for us? Yes. In Martin Scorsese's riveting and audacious exploration of greed and access, the Wolf of Wall Street takes us on a wild ride through the morally bankrupt world of high finance. Based on the real-life memoir of Jordan Belfort, Leonardo DiCaprio delivers a tour de force performance as the charismatic and morally dubious stockbroker who rises from obscurity to become a titan of Wall Street. Belfort's journey begins in the late 1980s, guided by his mentor, the flamboyant and unscrupulous Mark Hanna, portrayed with infectious energy by Matthew McConaughey. Belfort quickly learns the ropes of the financial industry. With the allure of wealth and power, he opens his own firm and embarks on a path strewn with unbridled access, fueled by an insatiable hunger for more. As Belfort's empire expands, so does the indulgence and debauchery that define his life. Lavish parties, obscene displays of wealth, and a plethora of vices become the norm for him and his loyal followers. Together they revel in a world where money knows no bounds and morality takes a back seat. Yet as Belfort's empire reaches unprecedented heights, the authorities start to take notice. The Wolf of Wall Street paints a mesmerizing and unflinching portrait of excess and its consequences. At its core, the Wolf of Wall Street is a scathing critique of a system that rewards unscrupulous behavior and places unbridled ambition above all else. Thank you. Did you know? The film set a Guinness World Record for the most instances of swearing in a motion picture. It uses the word fuck 506 times, cunt three times, twat twice, fuckface once, and prick four times, averaging 2.81 profanities per minute. The previous record holders were Scorsese's 1995 gangster film Casino, which had 422 uses of the word, and the 1997 British film Nil by Mouth, which had 428. The record has since been broken by Swearnet, the movie, which uses the word 935 times, but it still holds the record for a major theatrical release. Did you know? The actors snorted crushed B vitamins for scenes that involved cocaine. Jonah Hill claimed that he eventually became sick with bronchitis after so much inhaling and had to be hospitalized. Did you know? Matthew McConaughey's scenes were shot on the second week of filming. 
The chest beating and humming performed by him was improvised and actually a warm-up rite that he performs before acting. When Leonardo DiCaprio saw it while filming, the brief shot of him looking away uneasily from the camera was actually him looking at Martin Scorsese for approval. DiCaprio encouraged them to include it in their scene and later claimed it set the tone for the rest of the film. Did you know? Originally, Martin Scorsese offered Margot Robbie to appear wearing a bathrobe during the seduction scene between her and Leonardo DiCaprio. Robbie refused and insisted on doing the scene fully nude, her first in her career. According to Robbie, the whole point of Naomi is that her body is her only form of currency in this world. She has to be naked. She's laying her cards on the table. Robbie said she had three shots of tequila in succession before shooting the scene to relax. After shooting was complete, Robbie initially fibbed to her family and friends about actually doing the nude scene in order to delay any personal repercussions, claiming CGI was used to superimpose her head on a body double. She eventually changed her mind and confessed when the film was released. Did you know? The majority of the film's dialogue was improvised, as Martin Scorsese often encourages. And with that, we'll take our first break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we revisit our 14th ever episode with another Scorsese classic, Taxi Driver from 1976, directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Paul Schrader, music by Bernard Herrmann, and starring Robert De Niro, Jodie Foster, Albert Brooks, Sybil Shepard, Peter Boyle, and Harvey Keitel. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Dad, best performance, who did you have down? Leo. I did as well. Do we make it a trifecta? Of course we do. I I had a feeling that was where we we're going to go. Well, I mean, he carried the film, and his his ability to go from 0 to 110 miles an hour uh, based upon his drug use was... Uh, a great performance. There was a lot of energy. I can imagine by the time he was done with a day's shoot, he was pretty much spent. He just seemed to put a lot into this performance and did it uh, incredibly well. Yeah, he's absolutely electric. I mean, if you told me he actually did cocaine on set, I would believe you because he's so he's so wired and he's just so great. He, you know, he hits forte, he hits pianissimo. Like he's just his range is incredible in this film. And yeah, he carries the movie completely. Um, I absolutely love his performance. One of my favorite performances of all time. Well, not only do you have to make drug use entertaining, especially because I think that the majority of people, while they somewhat come to Scorsese movies for the ritual of these are bad things these people are doing, but I'm going to have fun watching them do them. You even still have to get past the normal oh, these people are such rabid drug users. How could they be entertaining, or why could I be rooting for them against the FBI? In every other instance, you're rooting against these people. And he has to be able to carry you from one moment where he's giving an inspirational speech, which is hard to pull off, and he does it with great aplomb, to fighting with his wife as she's trying to withhold sex from him, and then go back to tossing midgets, and all of it somehow is entertaining. He is the glue that holds the whole movie together. It is 
in some ways, a one-man performance. I don't think there's a scene that he's not a part of, save for the one small cut where we go to Rob Reiner watching, what was it, Beretta? Oh, no, it was The Equalizer. The Equalizer. Yes. Who calls on a random Tuesday night? Yes. Great show, by the way. The original. You didn't mind the movies. I mean, there's a reason yes. they're making a third. Yes. The the movies with Denzel have been very good. So, best secondary, I had Jonah Hill. Hmm. I had Scorsese. I liked Jonah Hill in this. I thought his performance in Moneyball was actually better, although it was pretty good in this one. But I went with Rob Reiner just because I wanted to go with Rob Reiner. Because I just love Rob Reiner because this film, he was kind of the acerbic muse throughout the film, the kind of a guy of talking of reason that's almost laughable because he's trying to be reasonable in this sea of turmoil. And it just brought back memories of his father and, uh, and uh, his performances and such. And so I just loved him in it. I thought his, um, some of his rants were just wonderful and thought he was, uh, he did a really nice job. He comes in at a really key moment in the film where it could start to drag because the drug juice just gets so repeated that you're like, okay, I've seen this before. We're just doing a second hour of everybody doing coke and tossing midgets and doing blow with hookers. He comes in and he kind of breaks up the film a little bit and adds a few moments of levity because it's really memorable when he comes in. It's almost to the level of Kirk Gibson in the World Series. He comes in with a great pinch hit, and that's all you needed. Yeah, he comes in at the perfect moment because it's right when, you know, Jordan is at the summit. Like, he's at his absolute apex. And as soon as Reiner comes in, it really just, it all goes to hell for him. But So are you saying that when dads get involved, it just all goes to shit? Well, I wouldn't know since mine left when I was three. So I, I don't want to imply that, but, um, you know. Thanks for opening up that old wound, Tom. Yeah, you're welcome. I mean... <laughs> Dad here has a, a few open slots on uh, his bingo card yet. I think he only has like 18 adopted children. Oh, okay. Yeah. Looking for one more? Or... Mm. Sure. <laughs> why not? One yes. of the merrier. So I went with Jonah Hill specifically because for a while I was going to go Terrence Winter because some of the dialogue and the speeches in this are great. And then I read excerpts of the script and there is a lot of improvisation in the film. There's a lot of pieces of Leo's speech, the I'm not going anywhere that he worked on. So it was harder for me to give it to Winter, who I think is actually a brilliant writer. He was a guy that wrote, I think the primary stuff for Boardwalk Empire. He was a Sopranos writer. He's done a lot of stuff that I, I'm sure, unless you're an industry person, you've Probably you may know of his projects, but not know him necessarily. And that's the unfortunate part of writers. But I couldn't quite get there because of those hangups. So I shifted my focus a little bit to Hill because I actually think that he's got to be the sidekick and he's got to be the background, but he's got to be memorable without being overpowering. And it's hard to live in such a 
big spotlight that is in the shadow of DiCaprio through an entire movie, but not necessarily feel the lesser. And so it's a, a really tricky part, I think, in a way that he's got to come in and he's got to be his sidekick. And I don't know. I mean, if you look at a few of his select scenes, I just found him to be really captivating in those scenes. So he could kind of weave in and out of the film and be entertaining without being overpowering. I would agree with that. I would also agree with Dana that Moneyball was, I think, a slightly better performance from him. Both were great. I like to think it's the same character. And he quits the Oakland A's job to go work for Jordan Belfort. I, I like, even though the timelines, I don't think match up. But, uh, uh, not even close. In fact, it would be yeah. the opposite way around. Yeah. Well, movie release order, the timelines match up. And I like to think that because that's funny to me. I debated between Hill and Scorsese for this one. I went with Marty because I think this was his last great movie. And maybe Killers of the Flower Moon will change that. Um, obviously, it comes out later this year, but I don't think he's made a very good one since. I didn't like The Irishman at all. And so this was kind of feels like his swan song. Maybe Killers of the Flower Moon will be that, but for right now, this feels like it. And that's fair. I mean, in a way, I would liken this to Goodfellas on Wall Street. It feels very similar in kind of how it's paced, how the narration goes, the excess that's there, the eventual downfall, how long it is. Uh, so, I mean, all of those thing, things seem to fit in. And uh, while one goes to prison, the other one just gets out of prison by taking the easy way out. So there is a mirroring effect to this film. As far as most charismatic, I really debated giving it to Marty because a lot of the film is in his tone and it you can tell that it's a Scorsese film due to just the high degree of excess. The only person that I think was even more gratuitous than Marty has been is the person that he learned in the shadow of for a little while, and that's De Palma. But otherwise, I think this is probably pretty close to that. But given the career that she's had after this film and was primarily because of this film that she got made, I would find it very hard not to go Marco Robbie here. I agree. And it helps that she's a smoke show in this film. Oh, yeah. You're not wrong. You're I mean, that's wrong. that that's half of the reason any teenage boy went to see this movie. Or tried to sneak it in as a rental somewhere or whatever. True. Very true. She's the best part of Babylon. That piece of shit. <laughs> oh. I think it's a I think it's a good movie. Dana, yeah. you like Babylon? Yes. Oh my god. He and I both liked Babylon. We had a great time seeing it, being the only people in the theater. Yep. Yeah, I was the only one in my theater. It was terrible. I hated it. It would have been good like two hours shorter. Robbie's a great choice. Inspired pick. I love it. She's fantastic. I went with my guy, though, Matthew McConaughey. Incredible. Throwing a million miles an hour in two scenes, and it's amazing. And he's just, he's he's great. One of his best performances. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. It's right at the tail end of the McConaissance. Because isn't this the year that he wins over Leo for Best Actor? Yes. Yes, which is egregious, and I will never let go. I love my guy, Matty Mick. That's not a good nickname. Love my guy, McConaughey. Should not have won that Oscar. It's a crime. Um, but Interstellar comes after this movie, and I think that's the 
the end of the reconnaissance. And now uh, he just gets to be on Yellowstone. Ugh, Yellowstone. <laughs> All right. Well, we've been waiting for it. Well, let's move into best scene. Here are a few nominees, and we're going to make some big pauses in here. But the first one I have down is the first day. So as they're on the trading floor and he gets kind of shotgun into this world and you understand kind of the universe that he's living in, what the trading floor is like, I think it's a pivotal and fantastic scene. But now we're going to reenact the martini lunch. In the role of Mark Hanna, Adam. In the role of Jordan Belfort, yours truly. And playing Hector the Waiter, Dana Duncan. Can I just say before we go, you sent this transcript in an email, which I very much appreciate, but you highlighted all of your lines. And it is very confusing to read this along because <laughs> I'm drawn to the your lines. And so it's very confusing to me to read this. Having worked with him now for two and a half years, um, he's a very generous co-host. He uh, always lets you have opportunities that, um, yeah, sure. I, I do appreciate the transcript, though. That was helpful. But <laughs> So, let, let us begin. Mark Hannum, Matthew McConaughey, performing the money chant while pounding his chest. After the chant, he snorts some cocaine and offers some to Belfort. Tootski? Oh, no, thank No, no, no. Thank you, though. Misters, uh, what can I bring you on this glorious afternoon? Well, Hector, here's the game plan. You're going to bring us two absolute martinis. You know how I like them, straight up. And then precisely seven and one half minutes after that, you're going to bring us two more. And then two more after that, every five minutes until one of us passes the fuck out. Excellent strategy, sir. Oh, I'm, I'm good with the water for now, though. Thank you. It's his first day on Wall Street. Give him time. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mr. Hanna. You're able to to do drugs during the day and still function, still do your job? Well, how the fuck else would you do this job? Cocaine and hookers, my friends. Right. I gotta say, I'm incredibly excited to be part of your firm. I mean, the clients you have are absolutely... Fuck the clients. Your only responsibility is to put meat on the table. You got a girlfriend? I'm, I'm married. I have a wife. Her name is Teresa. She cuts hair. Congratulations. Thank you. Think about Teresa. Name of the game, move the money from your client's pockets into your pocket. Right. But if you can make the client's money at the same time, it's advantageous to everyone, correct? No. Number one rule of Wall Street, nobody, I don't care if you're Warren Buffett or fucking Jimmy Buffett, nobody knows if a stock is going to go up, down, sideways, or in fucking circles, least of all stockbrokers, right? Mm-hmm. It's all Fugazi. Do you know what Fugazi is? Fugazi, it's a fake. Yeah, yeah. Fugazi, Fugazi, it's a wazi, it's a woozy, it's fairy dust. It doesn't exist. It never landed. It is not matter. It's not on the elemental chart. It's not fucking real, right? Right. All right? All right. Stay with me. We don't create shit. We don't build anything. No. So if you get a client who bought stock at eight and it now sits at 16 and he's all fucking happy, he wants to cash in and liquidate and take his fucking money and run home. You don't let him do that. Okay. Because that would make it real. Right. No, what do you do? You get another brilliant idea, special idea, another situation, another stock to reinvest his earnings and then some. 
and he will every single time because they're fucking addicted. And then you just keep doing this again and again and again and again. Meanwhile, he thinks he's getting shit rich, which he is on paper. But you and me, the brokers, right? we're taking home cold, hard cash via commission, motherfucker. Right. That's incredible, sir. I'm, I can't tell you how excited I am. You should be. There's two keys to success in the broker business. First of all, you got to stay relaxed. Yeah. You jerk off. Do I, do I jerk off? Yeah. 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 I jerk off. Yeah. How many times a week? Like, uh, three, 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 four, three or four times, maybe five. You got to pump those numbers up. Those are rookie numbers in this racket. I myself jerk off at least twice a day. Wow. Once in the morning, right after I work out, and then once right after lunch. Really? Mm-hmm. Why? I want to. That's not why I do it. I do it because I fucking need to. Think about it. You're dealing with numbers all day long. Decimal points, high frequencies, bang, 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 eh, 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 fucking digits, kick, 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 all very acidic, above the shoulders, mustard shit. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Con can wig some people out. Mm-hmm. Right? So you got to feed the geese, keep the blood flowing, keep the rhythm below the belt. Done. This is not a tip. This is a prescription. Trust me. If you don't, you will fall out of balance, glitch your differential, and tip the fuck over. Or worse yet, I've seen this happen, implode. No, I don't want to implode, sir. No, no, you don't. I'm in it for the long run, you know? Yeah. Implosions are ugly. Yeah. Pop off to the bathroom, work one out anytime you can. And when you get really good at it, you'll be fucking stroking it and you'll be thinking about money. Second key to success. In this racket, this little baby right here, it's called cocaine. Right. Keep you sharp between the ears. It'll also help your fingers dial faster. And guess what? That's good for me. Yes, sir. Revolutions. You follow? Revolutions. Keep the client on the Ferris wheel and it goes. The park is open 24-7, 365, every decade, every goddamn century. That's it. Name of the game. How kiddicky? Mmm. Thank you. Mmm. Come on, with a common denominator. Keep it up for me. The CEO. How the mm. money comes in. The parade comes to town. Going down Broadway. It's a one-way street, whichever way I go. So, uh, did that live up to your expectations? That was great. Loved it. Lived up to my expectations with my two lines. You had three. You had three. Most charismatic performance goes to Dana as the waiter. One of them was, mmm. <laughs> a lot of my lines were, too. All right. Third scene I had nominated, Jordan's first penny stock, which is him selling the guy on the phone and everybody starting to, like, watch him as he was doing it, like he's somehow the god of sales. Meeting Donnie, which you show me you pay stub, I, sh I quit my job, and I work for you. Great. Absolutely fucking awesome. The Wolf of Wall Street, so that's when the article comes in, and then he has all these yahoos clamoring at his door trying to get in and be the next broker with him. Then I have First Night with Naomi. I have Steve Madden, which is not only the IPO, but it's the speech, which I will commemorate here. See those little black boxes? They are called telephones. I'm going to let you in on a little secret about these telephones. They're not going to dial themselves, okay? Without you, they're just worthless hunk of plastic, like a loaded M16 without a trained Marine to pull the trigger. And in the case of a telephone, it's up to each and every one of you, my highly trained Stratonites, my killers. 
My killers who will not take no for no fucking answer. My fucking warriors who will not hang up the phone until their client either buys or fucking dies. Let me tell you something. There is no nobility in poverty. I've been a rich man and I've been a poor man and I choose rich every fucking time. Because at least as a rich man, when I have to face my problems, I show up in the back of a limo wearing a $2,000 suit and a 40000 gold fucking watch. Now, if anyone here thinks I'm superficial or materialistic, go get a job at fucking McDonald's because that's where you fucking belong. But before you depart this room full of winners, I want you to take a look at the person next to you. Go on. Because sometime in the not-so-distant future, you're pulling up to a red light and you're beat-up old fucking Pinto, and that person's going to pull up right alongside you in a brand-new fucking Porsche with that beautiful wife by his side who got big, voluptuous tits. And who will you be next to? Some disgusting wildebeest with three days of razor stubble and a sleeveless moo-moo crammed in next to you with a carload full of groceries from the fucking Price Club. That's who you're going to be sitting next to. So you listen to me and you listen well. Are you behind on your credit card bills? Good. Pick up the phone and start dialing. Is your landlord ready to evict you? Good. Pick up the phone and start dialing. Does your girlfriend think you're a fucking loser? Good. Pick up the phone and start dialing. I want you to deal with your problems by becoming rich. All you have to do today is pick up that phone and speak the words that I have taught you and I'll make you richer than the most powerful CEO of the United States of fucking America. I want you to go out there and I want you to ram Steve Madden stock down your clients' throats till they fucking choke on it, till they choke on it and buy 100,000 shares. That's what I want you to do. You'll be ferocious. You'll be relentless. You'll be my telephone fucking terrorist. Now, let's knock this motherfucker out of the park. Yeah, you did this last night too. I find it very funny that you do the departed Boston accent for this speech, but the one we do at the lunch scene, there's no accent at all. I know. I find that very funny. Well, no comment. I can't do New York. I'm walking here. I used to do a, I had a, a judge I used to appear in front of, was from Brooklyn. And I would do his um, an impression of him for the clients to prepare them for the hearing. And uh, I had him so down that the minute he would start talking, the clients would bust out laughing. And he always, he always would like, why are they laughing? I mean, I'm doing an introductory instruction and they're laughing. And every one of them would laugh. I never did tell him, but... Uh, well, with good reason. Your impression of him sounds like Drippy Dog. But that's exactly the way he sounded. Hello, my name is... And I'm an administrative law judge with the Office of Hearing Operations. I, it's a wholly independent operation, and we will make an independent determination of your disability claim. All right, next scene I have down is Swiss banking. Then I'm not going anywhere. I have capsized. And finally, I have the wire. Now, any that I missed. Okay, how are you taking into account the little people tossing? Technically, there are two scenes. There's the pause as they're throwing the midget. I, I guess little people, yes. Okay, uh, what is the politically correct term now? I, I don't even remember. As far as I knew, last I knew it was little people. Okay, so I apologize if, if yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, yeah. The old guy's more politically sensitive than you. 
Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Anyway, there's the opening part of that, and then there's the discussion of what to do, kind of the planning meeting of the little person tossing. <laughs> yes. Do it, and, do it, do it. The reason I'm asking is because I'll tip off. That's my most indelible moment because that's the one thing from this movie I will always remember them throwing little people at a dartboard. <laughs> it's amazing. <sighs> it's amazing. Well, given that that's worth a 29 point play in football. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, there's a lot of context missing here for you, Adam. I understand, but yeah, I had to seize an opportunity. You had capsized as best scene. Interesting. I did not have capsized as best scene. As one of them? Yes. Interesting. Uh, okay. I find that is very tonally out of place in the movie. Well, I mean, it's a real-life event. Yeah, I know. But it just, I don't know. It ju- It just feels like so strange. Like, the rest of the movie, sure, there's a lot of cocaine, but, like, it's a pretty contained story, not not too outlandish, and then it's just, like, the Titanic all of a sudden for seven minutes, and then... It's like the scene in Goodfellas where she goes to Robert De Niro's character, and you can't tell whether or not he's about to kill her. It's the consequences coming home to roost. I was just surprised you had it best as one of the best scenes. I am not gonna die sober. <laughs> Jonah Hill is great in that scene. All right, so any others that we'd like to nominate? I had the feds on the boat scene. And then the only other one I had that you didn't have was the end fight between DiCaprio and Robbie. You're not taking my kids scene. I thought that was pretty good. Which is one of the reasons why I stopped doing uh, family law. It was way too uh, believable. Yeah, I'm sure that happens a lot. All right, so... I have Steve Madden and that speech that I gave as the best scene. I just think it sums up exactly who this character is in one moment and his entire thought process. I think I was very close to doing the first penny stock sale because I think that's really showing him at his peak as far as what he can sell and this kind of charlatan. It's just so impressive that all the little tricks and tactics that you can sort of pull out of that scene and why everybody's mesmerized at at him around him on screen is the same way you are in the audience with how well he can do this. But ultimately I go with the Steve Madden one because you got troubles. I want you to fix it by being rich because that's apparently the problem that solves all ills. It goes back to his original thought or his line earlier in the film. I'm addicted. It's not to any of the drugs. It's not to any of the women. It's to this right here, and he holds up the $100 bill. You sure it wasn't that he just was attracted to Ben Franklin? I don't know. Those were some tight knickers. It was the balding head. At least that's what you are hoping, Tom. Oof. Okay, thanks. Oof. Oof. And let's make this, this pot even clunkier. I went with the penny stock, the first penny stock scene as the best. I think that's the best scene. Oh, Belford and Mark Hanna. I, I, I mean, that just, that, that's the parameters. 
because life is a lot of times about, for the younger part of the audience, you used to have these plastic discs that were called records, and they had grooves that were carved in, and the needle would go around them and play music, and you would follow those. And a lot of times life is about you are in within those grooves and they establish the behavior and how you function. And in this particular case, that scene sets up how he is to behave and what he is to do for the remaining time he is on Wall Street. And so that's why I picked that one because I think that sets the tenor of the entire film that excess is okay ripping off your clients it's expected what wall street's all about and you know your you know your scorecard is how much money you have not ultimately how well you do in your job and that's accurate favorite scene i went with the first penny stock scene as i mentioned before i just I really enjoy that scene for all of the sales tricks that he does just because I could never do that. I don't have no soul. No, uh, a double negative from you, Tom. I know it should be. I have a soul. I'm aware of what a double negative is. I know. But as a number of times you've criticized me for using it. And yet you continued to use it anyway. Because it's artistic. Mm. He doesn't not have a point there. I, apparently this has created a, a rebel alliance against me as the host of this show. I, I'm not really enjoying this right now. Oh, no, no, no. Who said I, who said are, I wasn't talking about you? You're only one of the two hosts of this show. Sure. So my favorite scene was the McConaughey lunch. It's, it's an incredible scene two of my favorite actors of all time just going back and forth and it's great. Yeah. It's the, the feed the geese line is incredible. And, and DiCaprio's reaction to when he says, do you jerk off? And he's just so, do I jerk off? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's unbelievable. It's a great scene. It's my favorite scene. Mine is befriending Donnie Azoff sitting there having lunch and he starts talking about, you know, I, 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 I heard you're like, uh, sleeping with your cousin? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, that's not a problem. We, you know, like, we've been doing this for a while. And, and then he t- says, the, you know, like, aren't you worried about, like, uh, retardation? Well, if that's the case, we would just, like, go to the woods and let him loose. And go, get out, get out. And you're going... <laughs> Be free. What the hell are you doing? No, no, I'm just kidding. We would call social services and have take them. <laughs> At that point, you're going, this guy is insane. And anything you are willing to do, this guy is going to buy in. Okay? If you, if you want to tell him that we're going to start selling trips to Venus as part of our sales pitch, Oh yeah, I'm the first one lining up, and and between that and, and I would assume they had prosthetics to give Jonah Hill that like weird, bright white teeth look. I mean that just was after he commented about his teeth. 
I spent the entire time going, I'm not going to look at his teeth. I'm looking at his teeth. Why am I looking at his teeth? I don't want to look at his teeth. Okay, no, I'm not looking at his teeth. I'm looking at his teeth again. Why am I looking at his teeth again? <laughs> his rationale? I wasn't going to let somebody else fuck my cousin. <laughs> Out of respect. Yeah. <laughs> respect. We should have done that scene too. What were we doing, Tom? We should have gotten that transcript as well to do that. Oh, I have I have it in my quotes. I figured I would use that since I obviously find that as my favorite scene. Oh, man. Yeah. All right. Indelible moment for me is the martini lunch. We've already commented on enough. Uh, Dad, which we already have, that leaves Adam. I went with the I'm not going anywhere speech. I think as much as I love the McConaughey lunch, I, the, I do think the first thing I think of when I think of this movie is him giving that speech. And, and just riling up the sycophants. So is it the scene itself, or is it the meme that every NBA player uses? Yes. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Before we get into quotes, <laughs> let's take our second break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, releasing in the early part of this July... Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast and I are back with our special series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half, we will now apply the Stan Lee rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month, we're covering Phase 1 bridge film Iron Man 2 from 2010. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Paxton Whitehead, 85, English actor, friends, mad about you. The West Wing, Camelot, Back to School, Kate and Leopold. Tony Award nominee and for Camelot 1981. I specifically remember him in Back to School where he's the economics professor in his interplay with uh, Rodney Dangerfield. Teresa Taylor, 60, American drummer. Butthole Surfers was her band, and she was also an actress in Slacker. Angela Thorne, 84, British actress. Midsummer Murders, Lady Oscar. To the Manor Born and Silent Hours. And then a British institution, uh, Glenda Jackson, 87, English actress, Women in Love, uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday, and Touch of Class. She was a member of Parliament from 1992 to 2015. She won an Oscar uh, in 1970 and in 1973 for Women in Love and A Touch of Class. And so we remember these here for their contributions to the arts politics, music, and everything in between with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. And now we will completely desecrate their memory with all the best funniest lines from this movie. Jordan Belfort. My name is Jordan Belfort. I'm a former member of the middle class raised by two accountants in a tiny apartment in Bayside, Queens. The year I turned 26 as the head of my own brokerage firm, I made $49 million which really pissed me off because it was three shy of a million a week. Belfort, people say shit. 
I mean, like, you married your cousin or some stupid shit. As of. Yeah, my uh, wife is my cousin or whatever. But it's not like, you know, like you think. Belford, is it like a first cousin? As of. Uh, her father is the brother of my mother. Like, we grew up together. and She grew up hot, you know. She's fucking grew up hot. And all my friends are trying to fuck her, you know. And I'm I'm gonna let one of those fucking assholes fuck my cousin? I, I, I use the cousin thing as, you know, as an in with her. I'm not, like, gonna let some else, someone else fuck my cousin, you know. If someone's gonna fuck my cousin, it's gonna be me, out of respect. Belfort, I never ask my clients to judge me on my winners. I ask them to judge me on my losers because there are so few. Belfort, Brad, show them how it's done. Sell me that pen. Watch. Go on. Brad, you want me to sell you this fucking pen? Or that's my boy right there, can fucking sell anything. Why don't you do me a favor? Write your name down on that napkin for me. I don't have a pen. Exactly. Supply and demand, my friend. Belfort, let me tell you something. There's no nobility in poverty. I've been a rich man and I've been a poor man. And I choose rich every fucking time. Because at least as a rich man, when I have to face my problems, I show up in the back of a limo wearing a $2,000 suit and a 40000 gold fucking watch. This is Donnie. I tell you what, you show me a pay stub for $70,000 right now, and I quit my job and I come work for you. Hey, Polly, what's up? Yeah, yeah, everything's fine. Hey, listen, I quit. Belfort, on a daily basis, I consume enough drugs to sedate Manhattan, Long Island, and Queens for a month. I take Quaaludes 10 to 15 times a day for my back pain, Adderall to stay focused, Xanax to take the edge off, pot to mellow me out, cocaine to wake me back up again, and morphine, well, because it's awesome. But of all the drugs under God's blue heaven, there is one here that is my absolute favorite. See, enough of this shit will make you invincible, able to conquer the world and eviscerate your enemies. Sniffs cocaine. And I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about this. Shows a $100 bill. Max Belfort. What kind of a hooker takes credit cards? As a, a rich one. This is Donnie to Belfort, two hours and 45 minutes into the film. Important to note that. Jesus Christ, I think you have a fucking drug problem. <laughs> Going back to the uh, to my quote, I, uh, I uh, used to make a joke about a, a, stripper who takes, a stripper who takes credit cards. I wonder how she swipes the card. All right, dirty old man is back. <laughs> All right, Belfort. Oh my god, you had to deal with the fucking golf course people too. What a Greek tragedy. Honey, oh my god, you probably had to pay them in cash with your hands. What a fucking burden. And I actually had to do some work besides swiping my fucking credit card all day. Huh? Because I can't keep track of your professions, honey. Last month you were a wine connoisseur and now you're an aspiring landscape architect. Isn't that right? Max Belfort. 430000 in a month, Jordy? Huh? Jordan. Their business expenses. Max. Jordy, what have you got here? Look look at this. 26000 for a fucking dinner. Jordan. No, 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 no. This can be explained, Dad. We had clients. Pfizer clients. Champagne. Nikki Kozoff. The porterhouse from Argentina. Jordan. Expensive champagne and the what? We had to buy champagne. Jordan. 
and you 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 bought all the sides. Tell them about the sides, Donnie. I ordered the sides. So sides, sides, twenty six thousand dollars worth of sides. What are these sides? The cure for cancer, Donnie. The sides cure cancer. That's the problem. That's why they were so expensive, Jordan. Busting out laughing. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. I'm serious. Uh, I don't remember if this was Jordan or Donnie, but uh, we're going to throw the shit out of this little fucker. Donnie Azov, I'll tell you what. I've never eaten at Benihana again. I don't care whose birthday it is. (laughs) I'm done. That was the last one I had. I thought that was great. Um, I have one more. Donnie and his wife. Uh, You don't know shit about CHOP. I'll CHOP your fucking credit card in half. How about that? Jordan Belfort, the only thing standing between you and your goal is this bullshit story you keep telling yourself as to why you can't achieve it. It's actually a really good quote. Belfort again, you want to know what money sounds like? Go to a trading floor on Wall Street. Fuck this shit, that cunt cock asshole. I couldn't believe how these guys talked to each other. I was hooked in seconds. It was like mainlining adrenaline. Belfort, this right here is the land of opportunity. This is America. This is my home. The show goes on. They're going to need to send in the National Guard to take me out of here because I ain't going nowhere. And finally, Belfort, I'm not ashamed to admit it. My first time in prison, I was terrified. For a moment. I had forgotten I lived in a world where everything was for sale. Wouldn't you like to know how to sell it? All right. Now that we've uh, overly self-indulged, are we ready for the Stanley rubric? Yes. I think so. All right. Legacy is up first. Who would like to take it down? I can go first. So we're doing industry first. I had a 9 out of 10 for industry. I think this movie has an incredible legacy with the industry. It made $400 million or over that, which is insane to think of a movie like this. I mean, I think... It's a great movie, but for a movie like this to make that much money is is kind of insane. So it clearly had an imprint on the industry. It's such a star-studded cast. It's unbelievable how many big names are in this movie. McConaughey won the Oscar this year. He's in two scenes. Just an unbelievable cast. It's Marty's last great movie up until this point. I think it's Leo's best movie. I think it just all across the board has a great legacy within the industry. So what was your number? Nine. So did you split the categories at all? Oh, I always do that. I always, it's so four and a half. For a piece? Uh, yes. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Just had to do the math on that one, right? Okay. Yes. <laughs> I always get confused with this when we split it. Industry. I think it cemented Leo even further. He already had the chops as a pretty significant you know, serious actor, but Margot Robbie has become kind of a Hollywood icon at this point, and this was her vehicle. Um, so I have to give it points up for the industry for that. And I think the industry really likes this film. When we get to classicness, I'm going to have a problem because ultimately the film kind of is a version of another film that I thought about that I liked actually better because I think it actually told a better story ultimately about greed being good 
but uh, I'll give it a 4.5 for legacy for the industry. And in the moment, you know, and I'll get to that in a minute with impact and significance, I think the public really bought into this film. But this is not a film that um, even Scorsese fans go, this is the film to watch. You know, I think they have a tendency to pick other films of his. And so I think it's lost a little bit of luster. So I'm with a four for that ultimately. So 8.5. So we have the exact same number, but an inverse scoring. I had a four for the industry. I think this is a big movie, but I agree with your claims that I don't think this is the quintessential Scorsese for anybody in the industry because he has such bigger films. If you're mentioning the Rushmore of Scorsese, I don't think this makes it on. You probably have to maybe shoehorn The Departed in because it's the one he won his best director and the best picture for. But I think on any given hand, as far as picking his best films, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas are probably the first three off the list for most industry and critical praise and whatnot. And then you can maybe choose your fourth. And if you're shoehorning The Departed in, then it just depends on what you think is your next favorite because a lot of people love Shutter Island. A lot of people love Cape Fear. A lot of people love Casino. I mean, he's got a lot of great films. And by that extension, I don't want to knock this one as being his potential last truly great one. You know, I know that not a lot of people took to silence and The Irishman was a little bit divisive, even if it did get nominated for Best Picture. I don't know. I mean, I just don't see anybody really going out of their way to bat for this picture. By the inverse, I would say that the audience for this movie, there are not a lot of people in my age group, at least men, who have not seen this film. This was like a sensation in a way. Oh, have you seen this film? I can't believe they fucking made that film. People who watch almost no movies, people like Ben, my friend Ben, who watches maybe one movie a year, has seen this film. So there, there's a certain level of it piercing, at least for some imagination, the aura of what it is to be part of pop culture. I think this movie transcended it a little way, which is why it ended up doing as well as it did financially, comparative to other films like this. I think if it was a little less boozy, it was a little less drug-infused, it was a little less uh, greed-infused, and all the excess wasn't there, I don't think it would be as fun, and it would have pierced the culture in this way. And so that's where Dad and his high-mindedness is not necessarily one of the, the general folk, let's say. He's a little bit removed from some of that. Wow, that's hard to believe. Well, you've only said it, I don't know, a half dozen times, at least on the show. And then you've insinuated it probably a half dozen more during this episode. But anyway, I was at a four for the industry, 4.5 for the audience for an 8.5 total. So that gives us an 8.67 average between the three of us. Shout out Ben. Making it on the pod. I think this is like the second or third time he's been mentioned. So Celebrity. we got to get him on. Well, maybe, maybe we should have him on doing the one film he watches a year. <laughs> That's a fun episode right there. Impact and significance. I went with a four for the industry. I think in the exact like moment that it was released, 
I probably could come up on the audience side of this because I only had a three. And my entire point was is that a lot of people watched it, maybe not in theaters necessarily, but they went and rented the thing or figured out where it was on streaming or whatever else. And so a lot of people saw this in the initial five years, and I don't know how many have returned to it since. So maybe my audience score probably should come up. But I think my industry one was where I really put my stamp on it in saying that this was on a lot of people's top 10 lists. It was on a best of the decade list for a lot of critics. It was nominated for several awards. It didn't win any. So I think that gives it a slight knockdown. I had a four on that one. So right now I have a seven, but somebody convinced me that I'm wrong on the audience side of this and uh, we can bump that up a little further. I'd love to to argue with you, but I had the exact same scores, a four and a three. I remember at the beginning, I meant, I noted, I clocked that when you said it was ninth most referenced as best movie of the year. Was that, was that right? I believe so. Yes. That's shocking to me that that eight other films are referenced more than this is the best movie of the year. That's preposterous. Um, I definitely think it deserves to be in the conversation for best movie of the century. I think it's on the short list um, so far. And for me, I don't know a lot of people that have seen this movie. And I mean, we live in very different areas, so it could be a geographical thing, but I don't have a ton of people in my life that have seen this movie, which is a shame, but I did give it a four for industry. I mean, Margot Robbie, maybe the biggest star in the world in terms of actress right now. Yeah, you're probably right. This is where she started. She's about to be Barbie, which is going to implode Twitter. The only one that would compete with her is Emma Stone. But she hasn't done anything major in like five years. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And especially if Robbie gets Sue Storm, then she's just going to friggin' explode. But you also have DiCaprio, because this was a role that I think a lot of people thought he should win. I don't think it's just me. And then he wins very shortly after this, because everyone's like, all right, it's time. We have to give him an Oscar. This is kind of the movie, I think, that tipped the scales for him. Um, so, yeah, I had four and three as well as you. Industry, I have a four um, because it didn't win any of the major awards. It was critically acclaimed, but most of the critics did not feel this was Scorsese's better work. The public, it did well, and I actually had higher than both of you. I went with a 4.5 because this was a lot bigger then people realize watching it on streaming, rental, etc. You know, I know what it did in the box office. I almost think that we should be looking not just at box office, but the rental or the streaming category as well. And any film since about 1997, 98, because a lot of people, I mean... This film was released about the time that I'm working 75, 80 hours a week. So I didn't, you know, not a film that I'm necessarily going to rush out to see. But I should have probably watched it when it was available. I just didn't. I don't know why. But normally I would have. And so I went with a little bit higher at the, at the 4.5. So 8.5 overall. It's just going to be really impossible to do rentals cable appearances, and anything else where we don't have quantifiable numbers, especially streaming numbers in this era as the show goes along yet, they don't release those numbers. 
So we have no idea. I mean, that's what this current writer strike is about. So the box office numbers, unfortunately, are pretty much the only thing we have to go on. I'd be surprised if this had a big cable life, given its runtime and given how much would have to be edited to the show. But this is right around the peak of the Netflix boom is 2012, 2013. And I think that's where most people caught it is either in a rental space where they were still ordering the DVDs or Blu-rays or whatever, or they caught it on streaming. Cause I think for a while it was on Netflix. It was. Yeah. But I mean, $400 million at the box office is insane for a movie like this. I mean, the flash, a huge summer blockbuster with Michael Keaton returning as Batman is not going to make $400 million. And this movie did. That's incredible to me. So actually with impact and significance, I talked myself into it since neither of you did a great job, but I uh, talked myself up to an eight. So four and four for the audience and the uh, industry respectively. So that's a 7.83 average between the three of us. Novelty. Wow. I feel insulted. I don't know about you, Adam, but, you know. Well, I froze there for just a second, but, uh, yeah, I didn't like that comment, though. Yeah, I mean, we didn't talk him up, but yet he came up. So he can't rely on our statements. He has to try to justify his own bad choices and rise, claiming it's on his own. Yeah, that is convenient. Convenient that he did he did bring his score up after we talked, but apparently we didn't talk him into it. That's That's interesting. Yeah, well, well okay. given that your score was equal to my other one, Adam, I'm pretty sure that that was not going to raise it. I guess I have conviction. I don't know. I didn't change my scores. So I don't know. Or you're just not as open minded. Well, that is probably true. I'm not not. Anyway, novelty. This is basically Wall Street mixed with Goodfellas and a fun version of it dialed up to 11 to honor our friend Rob Reiner here. I gave it a four. I gave it a four. I gave it a six. Five is typically my baseline, and it's you know it's fine. It's it's nothing special, but I you know I, I think it like you said it, it ramps up Wall Street like this is Wall Street on cocaine, which is the point of the movie. So I gave it a six. I wanted the five point five for novelty. To be honest, I have a feeling this more accurately portrays Wall Street than Wall Street did. I think that there was just a lot of excess. But you only came out at a 5.5? Okay. What's your point? My point is, is if you think this more accurately portrays Wall Street, that it wouldn't be more novel for its execution? No, because ultimately it does it. It's not that different than... It just doesn't resonate enough to me. So I went with 5.5. I, I just, I have a hard time going above that. I was looking at a 6.5 and I just couldn't go there. So I went with a 5.5 because, yeah, it may ultimately show more, but but I don't think it was quite as open and brazen as it portrays. I think this was much more cloistered. And in fact, Belfort talks about the fact that uh, the movie actually minimizes his drug use during this time frame, if you can believe that. That was his statement in an interview he did post-release of the film. Yeah, I don't know how you can use more drugs and still live. Okay, so that's a 5.17 average between the three of us. Classicness, I would normally hand this off to my dad, 
first, but we already mentioned at the top, there are multiple scandals that have kind of surrounded this film. One being the way it was financed could be a Malaysian money laundering scheme where multiple people went to prison. The other one being that there was a considerable backlash for how the portrayal seemed to celebrate drug use, greed, and all the partying lifestyle that this kind of uh, makes look fun. I don't know. The, the execution and how well a watch this is kind of holds up and are what may reinflate this for me. The question will be is if you feel this does celebrate or holds a light to this level of excess. So I'm not going to give a score first because I can't quite decide. I'm between roughly a six and an eight, which is a large range for me. So I'm going to let you two kind of figure out where you think you want to come down on this because I think this movie has a lot of problems. Well, I fell right in the middle of your range. I had a seven. There are definitely some problematic aspects of this it glorifies a lot including using little people as darts so you know they might not you know peter dinklage might have a a problem with this film i don't know but i uh i gave it a seven because i just fucking love this movie man and the first hour of this movie is so good and so rewatchable and i think people just have a difficult time I don't know, coming to terms with, you know, things that are immoral, like people are so pearl clutchy with things. It's like, oh, you can't glorify drugs and money and sex. And I don't know. It's just like, it's a movie. I understand it happened in real life, but also it's like, just, just watch the movie or don't like if you choose to watch the movie, you know what you're getting into and and just enjoy it, have fun with it. And I think it's a great movie. So I gave it a seven would have gone a 10, but the little people hurts it a little bit. I will guarantee that 33% of the people watching this film are going, that is fucking awesome. I mean, the worst that happened to him, he spent time in a federal prison playing tennis. I'll take that for that life. Having a fucking yacht with a helicopter and doing all that. Sign me up. I think this glorified it. I think it uh, gave people a false perception of what this lifestyle was and does not convey at all the ramifications associated with it. The harm that it happened, the fact that people's lives were disrupted, destroyed, that people lost (laughs) their ability to live comfortably in their old age, etc. So for classicness, I'm giving it a four because there are so many problems with this and the way it's presented because, and I'm sure it's correct, but that's the way it is. The fact that they're showing the guy playing tennis, well, this hellhole that I'm living in, here, serve yeah, okay, sure. Everybody's going, that's the worst that happens? I could do three years in a, playing tennis in order to live that life. I think it gives a false impression. So that's where my four is coming. You get to screw everything that moves. You get to live excessively all the time. 
you get to do as many drugs as you want without your heart stopping. You can live lavishly, eat $26,000 meals with many, many sides. You can yes. screw your cousin out of respect. And the worst you get to do is play tennis in a white outfit. Yes. Well, it's Wimbledon. You can't wear it. You have to wear white. In Nevada, which means that the temperature and the, the weather isn't poor. I mean, at least if you're going to have to do that, put them in some place like northern Minnesota. So they have to endure some some uh, poor weather. I appreciate you not saying Maine there. I think in addition to all the, the scandals and other pieces of this, there really isn't a downside at all to this movie. We can say in our plot summary and all the other places that this supposedly holds a lens to the or to the financial industry and shows us all of our worst sides it really is the one downside of the movie i enjoy watching the movie but it does celebrate this because there really aren't consequences for rich people and that's the reality of the situation so why wouldn't you kind of like use this as somewhat of a recruiting tool yeah army navy marines did you just call so, Iron Man 2? No. Stripes. He was watching it on Father's Day. Okay, because that's a line in Iron Man 2 as well. So We digress. Again, somebody just constantly picks and throws tangents out. I, I wonder why we're always off task on our monthly crossover pods. It's what I do. I'm, 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 I do the one-liners. I throw them out there and, and see what sticks. Spaghetti. All right. Those, those are the pleasant accidents. I'll split the difference between the two of you and go with a 5.5. So you need help with the math? No. Okay. It's a 5.5. Rewatchability. This is where I'll, I'll grade it up a little bit. It's a 7 for me. There are fun individual scenes. The movie's too long. It's too bloated. There's a whole bunch of stuff that you could still take out. I mean, how many different cocaine scenes do you need? And if we're going to take Kieran B's test for this category, and we like legal-seeming tests on this show, it's not a movie I would likely put on on my own, but it is something I would watch if it were on one day. And so by that metric, I'm going to go with a 7. Shout out Kieran B. Yeah, I gave it an 8. I, I really want to give it a 10 because the first hour is a 10. There's no doubt about it. The first hour is unbelievable. One of the best hours I've ever seen in a movie. But you are right. It is far too long. Three hours is a ridiculous runtime. It was ridiculous for Babylon. It's ridiculous for this. Movies should be like no more than 2.30. And this movie probably could have been like 2.20. And it would have been just fine. From when the feds are on the boat to the end is a whole lot of like the same thing just over and over and over again. You definitely could have pared that down. But I gave it an 8 because the first hour is like a 17. So when we get to it, I'm just going to hold your feet to the fire now and ask you what 20 minutes are you removing from Endgame? Okay, you got me there. But that's also different because that's also <laughs> like, that's a movie that is culminating 11 years and 21 other films. So that like, that has earned a little bit of a runtime. Oh, so so Babylon, did, Babylon did not earn a three hour runtime. No, and even people who like the film Tom and I would sit and talk about things that should have been cut. 
And uh, ultimately, Giselle was given broad scope to do it. I think in retrospect, there's going to be somebody who's going to be sitting on his shoulder going, you don't need this. You don't need this. You don't need this. And that would have been cut down to about two hours and 20 minutes. And it would have been a much better film. But I still like the film. For for me, rewatchability, I'll admit the first hour was good. Then it got really boring. And it wasn't until they started, like, you could see their, like, their collapse starting. And then you were, it was like watching a train wreck. And that picked up, you know, again, an interest. So cut out about 40 minutes in the middle of it. And you have a much better film. So I can't go anything more on rewatchability than a six. Yeah, I'll sit and rewatch it, especially the first hour. And there are certain scenes that I'll probably pay more attention to than others, simply because of the nature of what they're about. Yes, we understand, dirty old man. That's fine. So I'm at a six. So we have six, seven, and eight. Do you have that figured out? I think even you could do the math on that one. Ah, well, I'm glad. Yes, it's a 7 average between the three of us. For audience score, we had a 91% for Google users and 83% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.7. So to recap the categories, we had an 8.67 for Legacy, a 7.83 for Impact Significance, a 5.17 for Novelty, 5.5 for Classicness, a 7 for rewatchability, and an 8.7 for audience score, giving us a final total of... 42.87. And currently placing it on our list, between Shadow of a Doubt and Rocky II. Okay. Yeah, all right. Above Rocky II. Please tell me it's above Rocky II. just below Sweet Jesus. Okay, that's wrong. Okay, <laughs> we did something wrong. Restart. <sighs> yeah. Well. Okay. Sorry. I, maybe we did something wrong with Rocky too. Probably more accurate. <laughs> what number is it? How many have you done? This will be the 160th different movie on the list. This is the 169th episode. It'll be currently 125. Obviously, the number is subject to change after that. Wow. This is in... Yeah. Wow. You. Wow. Okay. All right. Hey, you were a part of it. You're, you're going you're gonna to backseat your own scores after the fact? I mean, this is turning out to be like Dad with Citizen Kane. It's Citizen Kane can't be in the 30s. You gave lower scores than I did. I don't know. Wow. In the yeah. bottom fourth. That's... Okay. okay. Scorsese movies are not going to rank fairly highly uh, when it comes to my dad. It's just not going to happen. So we, we would have to cut him out of the pod in order for them to raise back up the uh, list. Bring me on for Pulp Fiction. We'll, we'll drop that movie like a stone. It'll be in the one. Yeah, because that one's safely inside the top 20. That's preposterous. <laughs> that's preposterous. This That's 100 movies better than this one? Well... It is one of the few episodes my dad was never a part of. Ah. Otherwise, it would have dropped. Yes, it would I should probably protect that movie. <laughs> yeah. Golden briefcases aside. Remaining questions. 
I'm just going to read these all at once because they're basically all having to do with each other. Why don't people listen to their lawyers, especially when they are paying top dollar? Why would you go to the trouble of telling Donnie you're wearing a wire only to forget the card and put yourself in potential jeopardy? Why wouldn't you diversify your holdings after the initial surge to become more legitimate and possibly draw heat away from yourselves? Why wouldn't you have Aunt Emma sign a power of attorney or a will or something as she took on the money indicating you as the beneficiary? These are stupid people. Yes. Smart criminals don't get caught. I was a criminal defense attorney for 17 years. Smart criminals don't get caught. The wire thing is is a tough is a tough look for my guy. Jordan, what are you doing? How do you forget the card? You know how easy it would have been to have the wife open a coffee shop and launder money through her coffee shop? That's how they do it on Breaking Bad. Or a pizzeria. Anything like that. Or a golf league. (laughs) Or a golf league. (laughs) A golf league would have been good, you know? I mean, there's all kinds of ways to to laundry money. Running for president? A lot of things you could do. And why do you have to go to Switzerland to hide the money? The Caymans are much closer. And more discreet. Yeah. I'm taking notes. Trust me, having done this for a number of years, it would be real easy for me to give instructions on how to hide and launder money. So, not that we're into self-incriminating tonight, but I think that's a no. three count by my... Yeah, I've never done anything, so... You gotta do the Kramer method. You gotta keep your money in your freezer with his blood. That's what you gotta do. Oh, Tom doesn't even get that reference. I forgot. Oh, God. Nope. Yep. Un- unreal. Blasphemous. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Seinfeld's not funny. You're not funny. Fine. <sighs> Dana, you like Seinfeld, right? Yes. Okay. Okay, we're good. Yeah, I, <laughs> I I grew up with sitcoms. I was a small child. I watched Laugh In. Now, in retrospect, watching Laugh In, I can't believe my parents let me watch it. Probably because most of the jokes that were inappropriate for a five or six year old, I didn't get. Well, anyway, remaining questions for either of you. Does Jordan Belfort go on to be the Great Gatsby? Is this a shared universe? Does he does he somehow recoup his his wealth and uh, and then become Jay Gatsby? Change his name, move to a different part of the country, and meet Tobey Maguire? Does that happen? I like to think it does. Only in the Twilight universe. How, how dare you? The system is stacked because there's certain ways of doing it. You know, I mean, what did Michael Milken? He was. He was not allowed to work in security. So what did he do? He consulted with Ted Turner for the sale of Turner Broadcast to AOL. He got paid like 3 or $4 million for it. And it was a consulting fee. So he wasn't technically in the industry. And it was enough basically for him to live the rest of his life without worrying. And, you know... These people know how to do it. Was that a question? No, <laughs> I, it was a statement. I was okay. waiting for the question. I was too. I, would... 
I, I just am saying that, there, you know, this is just the way it is. Well, if we didn't have a bad dismount, we wouldn't have any at all. Oh, can I have one more question? I just thought of a question. The dartboard, got to be bigger, you know? The the proportions. Yeah, that was my thought, too. The bullseye, you know, it's... it's well, how easy. do you score? What do you mean? You throw them. Yeah, but their surface area is going to cover multiple portions. So if you're throwing That's it, what I'm saying. how does it score? Yeah, you got to make it way bigger. It's it's way too small. I mean, it's so easy to get a bullseye. You have to have a Velcro hat. Ooh, wow. <laughs> or they'll tip the fuck over. <laughs> All right. Thank you for being on with us, Adam. <laughs> Had a blast, as always. If nobody knows how to find you yet on the show, where can they find you and your work? Sure, you can get more of this lovely content about uh, the size of the dartboards needed for throwing little people. You can find us on Spotify at The Streaming Circuit. That's the name of the, the podcast. We do a lot of brackets. Tom, I, I can't tell if Tom likes or not. I don't know. He gives me a lot of crap about him, but I think he secretly likes him. I don't know. I disagree with almost all of them wholeheartedly. The seating is awful. The committee should be reformatted. The committee is reformatted every episode. That's the pleasure of it. Every episode's a new committee, except for me, of course. I apologize to you, Adam. I ended up procreating and developing someone who's half my dad, who's antisocial, and half of my wife's dad, who's opinionated and can be kind of a butthead. So that's what we ended up with. It's okay. We love him anyway over at the streaming Yeah, I know. Uh, but yeah, you can find out we got a bunch of Movie Madness episodes coming this year. Uh, we just released Superhero Movie Madness. We got Sports Movie Madness coming soon. Bunch of different stuff. A lot of fun. So check us out at the streaming circuit on Spotify or www.thecircuitverse.com to check, all out, or check out all of our content on sports and pop culture. And you can get at the Circuitverse to send all of your harassing tweets. True. That's true. That's all one word, in case anybody doesn't know how to use Twitter. True, I probably should have plugged Twitter. I'm still not very good at this part of the of the podcasting game of plugging myself. So yes, please check us out on Twitter. You can see all my bad sports takes, because lately, I've had a few of them. I won't yep. lie about that. Fuck you, Seattle Mariners. Fuck you. This, this guy has been owning you on all the sports takes. Okay, well, you laughed at me when I said the Lakers have a top 10 defense. You laughed me out of a chat. And they have the best defense in the league, so I don't want to hear it. Yeah, and then I told you that Jokic was going to beat their ass. Yeah, well, I was wrong about that. As I just stated, I've been I've been not on a heater lately. And you picked Houston to win the Final Four, and who did this guy pick? I, I think I picked UConn. Oh, no, you, yeah, that's fair. I was on the UConn bandwagon, Yeah. so, you know. Actually, no, you're wrong. I picked Kansas, which is even worse. You kept picking Houston. I picked them all in the regular season, then I picked Kansas at the last second, and yeah. So, I did pick the Braves for the World Series. They look good, so maybe we're back on track. I don't know. They look good so far. Long way to go. A lot of ball game left. I know. Well, I sh- you should have known better to pick Houston because Kelvin Sampson actually had to play by the rules, so therefore there was no chance. And with that lovely note... All right, that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. You talking to me? You talking to me? 
You talking to me? Then who the hell else are you talking? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Oh yeah, okay. Next week we revisit our 14th ever episode with another Scorsese classic, Taxi Driver from 1976, directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Paul Schrader, music by Bernard Herrmann, and starring Robert De Niro, Jodie Foster, Albert Brooks, Sybil Shepard, Peter Boyle, and Harvey Keitel. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronneyduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page on a Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.